there is a contingent of people who are saying, oh, this is no big deal. You're not going to be playing your PS4 by the time this all goes down. And and I just want to say to those people, please f*** off and please stop <laughs> using the internet and communicating with other human beings because <laughs> you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Grego Stady One, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on RFGeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter and Discord. This month, we're taking a look at Supergiant Games' sophomore effort, Transistor. The studio made a concerted effort not to copy their first hit, Bastion, so how did it pan out? Stay tuned as we offer our analysis. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, or just visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at rfgplaycast, and Rich is at TheSingleBanana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to rfgeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast.
Oh, jeez. I apologize for the sniffles, man. I don't know what it's like in Austin, Texas, but the pollen here, we call it the Great Yellow Death. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's the, awful. The allergies are legendary in Austin. It's a saying that if you've never had allergies in your life, you will have them when you come to Austin. And uh, pretty much everybody I know, that's been the case for them. Yeah, at least where we live. During the spring season, your car is completely yellow. It's completely covered in pollen. We have a lot of people that we know that have moved down here from up north, and they're like, oh my gosh, is it always like this? I'm like, (laughs) yes, every year. Um, I'm curious how that was for you. Was it this bad in New Jersey when you were there, or is this a whole new experience for you and the wife? Yeah, there was definitely seasonal allergy situations going on in New Jersey as well. So it wasn't like a big transition to come down here. Mm-hmm. So something we've always dealt with. I get them from year to year. Like It's not very consistent with me. I'll say that. Sometimes I'm like hardcore on the Claritin or the Benadryl or whatever it is. And then some years it just doesn't affect me at all. So I don't, I'm not sure what that is. But yeah, it's, it's been my whole life. But it seems to be worse down here like everybody gets allergies really bad Mm -hmm. do you want a pro tip from an allergy sufferer yeah totally buy local honey okay because the bees that carry the pollen around it ends up in the honey and so apparently helps build up your immunity to local weeds and and pollen and stuff like that so uh, uh you know supposedly it works You know, you want to get it in your general vicinity, like what may be good for one part of the state may not be good for another because different things may grow. So uh, if you go to a farmer's market or something, just make sure you ask if it's local and how local it is and try it out. should help you some. Awesome. I like that because that's better than taking some over-the-counter drugs. And I always like natural cures better than that kind of stuff. So cool. Yeah even though I am on the Zyrtec right now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, man, I had to kick back the recording today a little bit. We're uh, opening up the pool and trying to get it ready, and I've had some more plumbing issues, so I've been to Lowe's twice already, but fortunately, uh, everything is great. Uh, As everyone knows, you and I are starting our own plumbing company. (laughs) We should. (laughs) (laughs) I bought some uh, plumber's tape. And some of the glue for, like, PVC pipe. Yeah. So, yeah, everything is uh, nice and secure. Cool. I really want to go swimming. I haven't gone swimming in a couple years, I think, which is a real shame. So. Oh, man, there's some great spots around your area when we visited. Oh, yeah. Uh, we hit some sort of natural areas that were really awesome out there. Yeah, the biggest one in the city is Barton Springs Pool. Mm -hmm. I've actually heard that it's been super crowded so far this year, which is pretty interesting because in Austin, it's... uh it's a blue city within a big red state, but so everybody's <laughs> yeah. pretty like on board with the pandemic precautions, let's say. So right. it's surprising to me when I heard that Barton Springs has been super jam packed, but mm. then on the other hand, not so much because people can be judged by their actions and not what they say on Reddit. You know <laughs> <what I mean? laughs> Absolutely. And I think it's been so long since people been out. People are kind of throwing caution to the wind right now. So we'll see what happens. We seem to be in a good direction and 
hopefully concerts will be coming back soon, which will be awesome for us. We'll have other stuff to talk about on the collector cast other than uh, topics that we come up with. But uh, Rich, I'm going to get a jar and I'm going to make you put a dollar every time you say collector cast <laughs> instead I of concert, concert cast. cast. Yeah, you did it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do need to start the collector cast jar. That would be good. <laughs> Well, man, I got really long lists for games I'm playing and my pickups. Mm. So I want to kind of move swiftly through this because we do have a long concert cast this month. But I wanted to throw out an anime recommendation, if you don't mind. Absolutely. I haven't done one of these in a while. And the reason for that is of all the anime I've watched in the past let's say year or so, none of them have really stuck out to me. In fact, it's been a very disappointing little while as far as anime that I've watched. You know, we had the the final season, quote unquote, of Attack on Titan, but then they ended that with a cliffhanger and said, psych part two of the final season will come in a year or so. And it was, that was like infuriating. Mm, doing that Lord of the Rings sh- to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I have been watching this anime. It's on Netflix. It's called Kakaguru-i. And I'll say that again because it's kind of hard to remember. Kakaguru-i. And it's about a academy where the students go up against each other in gambling competitions. So the whole like mechanic of the show is that each episode is like a gambling thing between the characters. And of course, the main character, Yumeko, she's of course the new student to the Academy and she has the kind of chosen one trope where she's just kind of beating everybody. And when you have this trope, it has to be done interestingly. Some other examples of this would be like the Prince of Tennis or One Punch Man, where the main character has like an unbeatable power. So how do you write that in interesting ways and put her into interesting situations? But in this show, they've done that and I'm almost done with it. There's two seasons on Netflix and I have like four episodes left on the second season. So I'm almost done watching it. And I got to say... No anime, again, in a while has lit me up the way this one has. It's suspenseful, it's intense, it's pervy, it's it's very (laughs) adult, the language, and there is, again, this kind of seedy nasty like sexuality to some of these characters. It's not pornographic or like hentai or anything. In fact, I'm four episodes away from the end and I haven't seen any nudity. It's more just like raunchy... I don't know, let's say on the level of like a teen comedy movie from the 80s or something like that. But it has this like intensity of a horror movie, but then it's also like seedy and weird and just freaky. And I just really love it. So I wanted to throw that out. I haven't recommended a, a good anime in a while, but this one has me coming back constantly to watch more episodes. Very cool. Are there body pillows involved? You know what? It's really funny. So my (laughs) usual cycle when I find a new anime that I really love is to like look it up and see if there's a Blu-ray that I can buy and then look it up, look up T-shirts for it. This one is very sparse on the merchandise. As far as I can tell, there's no physical media of it yet. So no Blu-ray. There's no official T-shirts. So if you want one, you got to buy one from like some weird Chinese seller on Amazon, which I'm, I'm not interested in doing. But there are plenty of body pillows <laughs> because there are a lot of, of let's say, you know, sexy female characters in this show. So, yeah. 
Yeah. So th- <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, something locally that popped up, I need to send you a picture of it. Uh, my buddy's store, he just got a vinyl in of the music from Evangelion. And I was like, nice. oh, man, I bet Sean would love that. But still, no record player, right? That's correct. Well, <laughs> maybe one of these days I'll get one or somebody will give me one or I'll find one at a garage sale. It's just that I'm not going to go out of my way to get one, you know? Yeah, understood. And it's a nasty habit to get into. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I am whooped. I'm, I'm so tired, man. Uh, <laughs> we uh, had a birthday party for my... Uh, recent five-year-old last night and we had eight boys spend the night ages four to ten and i woke up to all of them on my own because my daughter had an 8 a.m soccer match so yeah that's been my day and of course all kids parties end up turning into adult parties if that's not the case for any of you out there you're doing it wrong (laughs) <laughs> so yeah man I'm, I'm dragging a little bit with that in the pollen but uh you know hope that can make it through so uh yeah man let's get into mistakes our asshole friends pointed out sean do you have anything yeah so i have one correction for myself but it's more of a clarification what i said is technically right if you look at it in a certain way and as soon as I heard it on the show, I was like, oh, I shouldn't have said it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Had those moments. Luckily, I edit them out. <laughs> yeah, no, this one, <laughs> this one made, mine made it into the show. But it's it, you would only catch it if you know about this. So uh, when I was talking about Earth Defense Force... I said Earth Defense Force 2017 is the first game in the series. Hmm. This is true for North America. I just want to clarify... And nobody called this out. I I just noticed it when I was listening back to the show Mm -hmm. that there were two games before that in the main series that were released on the PS2 in Japan and or the PAL regions. And I haven't played those, but I want to. But anyway, the first game in the series in North America was Earth Defense Force 2017 for the 360. Very cool, man. Um, I'm kind of doing this new thing now where I go back and listen to the show for the first time after it's already been out. A lot of times we'll say, oh, this might be right. I'm not sure. I can write that stuff down and really fact check it so that I can report back on this section. And I got to say, man, uh, we were wiping with two ply this time. Uh, (laughs) We didn't have any mistakes. Uh, One of the things I did want to bring up is that... um, I'd mentioned one of the articles on our site about the burst trick wakeboarding game that I had picked up last month. And it was indeed written by uh, our good friend, Sir Psycho, uh, who does an amazing job on the site. And yeah, you should definitely check that article out. But uh, yeah, man, uh, we were pretty clean this past month. So uh, yeah, congrats. Awesome. Thank you. 
Cast? Yeah, man, let's do that. I'll just kind of start off by saying that this isn't our typical concert cast where we talk about shows we've gone to or we come up with top five, top ten lists. Based on the game that we're playing this month in Transistor, we decided to do something a little different in that most of this game has sort of an electro-jazz music feel to it. So we decided, hey, let's do a concert cast on jazz albums. This is going to be a little bit different in the fact that I'm a big fan of jazz music, and you really not so much or haven't had a lot of experience with jazz music. So I had recommended several albums for you to listen to as a sort of way of doing a, I guess, a beginner's guide to jazz, or albums that I feel that someone who wants to start listening to jazz should have in their collection and are good sort of jumping off points, right? Yeah, definitely. And everything you recommended to me was on Spotify, so that was very convenient. So I, I just made myself a playlist. I was able to listen to a lot, but not all of it. The playlist itself ended up being like over 10 hours long. So yeah. I tried to listen to it at work when I could. And sometimes at dinner with my wife, which some of these albums are perfect for that. And Absolutely. I'll definitely get into that when we start talking about it. But yeah, it was a good little homework assignment. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, I'll just start out by saying that I'll just kind of give a brief history of jazz. And we'll basically be talking about jazz in the 1990s. Jazz is an old form of music that started in Africa and then the ragtime and Dixieland type jazz that's going around in the um, 1800s. But in the 1900s, you started seeing this trend of what was called big band or swing music, you know, these big orchestral jazz movements with, you know, like Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong, probably the most famous. And then toward the late 40s, 1950s, you started getting in what was called bebop jazz or just bop jazz, which was people like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. It was a little more free forming and not so orchestral. It was, you know, smaller groups and somewhat testing the waters experimentally, but not going too far away from what was considered a jazz sound. In the late 40s, early 1950s, it moved into what was called modial jazz. One of the albums I recommended to you was Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. I put that at the top of the list. And mm -hmm. if you remember this album, it's from 1959. It starts out with sort of a da na 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 da da you know, da na 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 And it kind of keeps with that at first, and then it moves on through that. And a little bit of the music there is you know, somewhat experimental, 
but it, then it comes back to that same mode. It's kind of like when you tell a joke early in the night and then you come back to it later in the night, you know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like at a party, <laughs> you know, full circle. And that's sort of what Modial Jazz was. And then it moved on into, again, with Miles Davis sort of at the forefront, John Coltrane, into what was called free jazz or avant-garde, which was just very free-flowing experimental music. There wasn't really anything to sort of jump off of, like any type of mode or anything like that. Uh, it was just really free form, and it was just session musicians playing together. And one of the things you'll notice about a lot of these albums that um, that I had you listen to, if it's a Miles Davis album, John Coltrane, who was very famous saxophonist, will be playing on that same album, but it'll be a Miles Davis album. And that happens a lot. Davis plays on a lot of Coltrane's albums and back and forth, back and forth with a lot of these musicians. It's just something really cool about jazz that you don't really see a lot of in the uh, pop or rock and roll world. And then finally it went into what's called like more modern or fusion jazz, which was adding in funk, adding in synthesizers a little later on and including that with jazz. And uh, that's one of my favorite genres of jazz, though most purists really, really hate fusion jazz, but uh, I find it very, very interesting. So yeah, man, I don't know how you want to do this. Did you want me to read off the albums first, or did you just want to kind of go through them one by one and, you know, kind of give your thoughts and feelings about some of them? Yeah, I have the list in front of me, so we can kind of go through them. Okay, awesome. I, I would like to just get your thoughts real quick, and I'll give you mine. I, and like I said, I didn't listen to all of them, and unfortunately there's like a, kind of a rut in the middle of the list of ones <laughs> I didn't really listen to at all, or if I did, I didn't feel impelled to put notes on. Right. So uh, the first one was kind of blue, mm-hmm. Miles Davis. Yeah, I listened to this one. I liked it. I don't want to use the word generic, but I thought like if I put this on and said, hey, do you want to listen to some jazz? And I put this on, it would just sound, you know, this is what jazz sounds like to me. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And this is the album for me that really got me into jazz. A roommate of mine in college, he uh, spun techno music. We had turntables in our room. And, uh, you know, I was really into electronic, was going to a lot of raves and stuff like that partying quite a bit and uh one night we had just been drinking and he's like man i got something i want you to listen to and he threw on kind of blue and it just it just sort of blew me away you know because i guess if you think about it jazz in a certain sense is a lot like electronic music no vocals for the most part a lot of times there was something about this album i think it's sort of like that mode at the beginning that what i was talking about earlier the da 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 and it does that for a little while. And then when Miles Davis kicks in with that trumpet, that is one of the most awesome drop-ins that I've ever heard in music. And it's one of those things when I'm riding in my car and I have it on, I will turn it like up full blast, you know, <laughs> when that drop-in comes on because it's just, it, it's fantastic. I do that with other music too. Like there's a um, tool song that I really love, <laughs> you know, yeah. that there's this part where the, you know, the guitars are going to drop in real heavy and I'll turn it up. And it's funny that, you know, I'll do that with like uh, metal and also, you know, with jazz, because I just think this is a really fun kicking album. And like I said, John Coltrane's on this album and also Cannonball Adderley, who um, was a alto saxophonist. And I think Bill Evans, too, who's a percussionist, was on this album. So uh, it's a a murderer's row of jazz musicians. And uh, 
for anyone wanting to get into jazz, I would say start out with 1959's Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. It's just a really cool album and uh, some really good dinner music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was I would definitely put this one in the dinner music category. <laughs> yeah. The next one is the first one I listened to, which probably was a mistake. It's John Coltrane's Giant Steps. Mm hmm. And why I say this was a mistake was because, man, this album was kind of like where I can look at these guys and say, okay, these are legendary jazz dudes. I get that. <laughs> I'm, I, with all due respect, I, what I felt I was listening to was just a guy noodling around, just like, wow, he's really playing those notes, isn't he? <laughs> like, I, It's kind of hard to explain without sounding negative or mean about it but it was just like this constant noodling that i kind of got bored with it to be quite honest well you know coltrane grew up about five miles from where i'm at right now he grew up in high point north carolina oh cool yeah um there's actually a, a jazz festival held here every year for him i actually played saxophone back in middle school I don't know. I know you played in a band and you, you know, played guitar, but did you ever play any brass instruments or anything like that? I did not. Never played any wind instruments at all. Yeah, the saxophone, man, is, um, I don't know, it's one of those sounds that I'm very comfortable with. When I hear saxophone, I know I'm listening to a saxophone. Coltrane is just free-flowing and just beautiful, and, you know, I get it. If you don't dig jazz and aren't familiar with a lot of the sounds of the instruments, you, you want to sort of listen for the saxophone because that's going to be the front piece of the album. And even though other people are playing and, you know, Coltrane's not playing the entire time, there's something about Giant Steps that I really, really love. And uh, for me, it's one of the, the better saxophone albums of the early 1960s. Just my thoughts on that. Good. Okay. Let's move on to the next one. The next one he gave me was Charles Mingus, Ah, Um. And I actually put in my notes, this one was my favorite out of the whole list. Nice, man. Yeah. So I liked this one because I felt that there was a good mixture of that kind of virtuoso noodling, but also mm -hmm. songs with structure and repeating parts, but not in a way that was predictable or too simple. I just kind of felt like this was more in the vein of a structure that because you got to remember, like I'm into rock music, pop music. I can listen to classical music all day for whatever reason. But some of these jazz albums just didn't fit into any like groove in my mind. They just wouldn't fit the puzzle in my brain as far as like structure goes. <laughs> but this one did. So cool. if, if any of these albums, like if I'm ever going to go back and listen to more of them, it would be this one. Nice. Mingus was an upright bass player, and so that's what you're hearing here. And uh, this album's from 1959. And it's funny, you talk about noodling and such, and I had mentioned before that this was like that modial jazz period where it was moving into that free jazz or that more avant-garde type music. So a lot of these albums and a lot of what I became interested in when I started listening to jazz was more sort of the free form and the noodling. I'm sort of like you. I like rock and roll a lot. And I'm not into like jam bands and stuff like that. You know, I'm not a Grateful Dead fan. I'm not a Fish fan. Yeah. Um, I really don't like that type of music. But when it comes to jazz, there's something about the freedom of it that I really love. 
And so you got to remember around this time, there there's a lot of drugs going around. And so a lot of this improvising and this noodling is a, a lot of creativity coming from, you know, a lot of pot smoking, a lot of heroin as well, which is odd when you think about the 1950s, but there was a lot of heroin going around around that time too. So um, some of it can be quite off kilter and not have that pattern style like a lot of rock and roll songs do. But uh, you're right, Mingus's Aum definitely has some really nice structure to it. And the dude can play the bass, man. It sounds so great. I love an upright bass. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm really curious about what you think about the next one, man. Thelonious Monk's Genius of Modern Music, Volume 1. So actually, that one I don't have any notes on. I did listen to it, but I did, it must not have stuck out to me as much. Now, you gave me two Thelonious albums. The other one was called Straight and No Chaser. So do you yep. want to just take a minute and talk about Thelonious Monk? Yeah, let's do that. Let's kind of put those together. Straight No Chaser was 1967, and uh, Genius of Modern Music Volume 1 was 1951. So it was a very much earlier album. Uh, most of the albums I've talked about in the freeform jazz was late 50s and early 60s. But Monk was just one of these oddball guys. Everyone, I feel like, should watch a documentary called Straight No Chaser. It was from 1988, I believe. And it's a black and white documentary of Thelonious Monk. It's an interesting character. Definitely lots of um, mental health issues that he was dealing with. But it kind of came to the forefront in his playing. He was a pianist. If you listen to a Monk album, typically what you get a very structured band in the background. But he's playing the keys and he's just like tickling them in this like very avant-garde fashion, which was very, very odd for the early 1950s. Hmm. You know, jazz, especially early jazz, was so like pristine. There was a, a sense of rules about jazz. You know, it's very strict. It has to sound this way, and it has to appease more of a white audience. But Monk really, like, went against that sort of thought and was very much experimental in, the, in, in a very early period. That sort of idea trickled into the late 1950s, early 1960s, and really is sort of a, a rue for what we have today as far as the more fusion and modern jazz. So uh, I love Monk. I think he's such an interesting guy, and I just love the way he just manipulates that piano. He plays notes that are off chord and just works them in, but it still somehow just sounds really cool and beautiful. So uh, that's my thoughts on Monk. So uh, I don't know if you had any thought for the uh, the second album, Straight No Chaser, or not. No, sorry. I know I listened to a little bit of both of them, but I guess nothing stuck out to me. But I appreciate that history. Yeah, I would say give it another chance. Just, you know, maybe dinner one night. Just throw it on and really, like, key in on the piano and what the piano's doing in comparison to what the other instruments are doing. And I think you'll at least find it interesting, you know. It might still not be your thing, but it's pretty cool. Nice. Well, we actually skipped over one, Something Else by Cannonball Adderley. Speaking of dinner music, my notes in this one, I don't know if I'm way off base, but I actually put too mellow. So I don't know if that's if that's correct. And and you know what? Like some music is mellow. I I think what I went into this was like 
I believe I wanted to hear that like big band sound. I think yeah. that's what I'm looking for. So when I put on something that's kind of mellow, and like I said, when I eat dinner with my wife, every once in a while, I'll search on Spotify relaxing jazz playlist and put it on. <laughs> so when I listened to Cannonball Adderley's album here, I kind of felt like that fit into that vein. And I'm taking that as a knock against it, which it really shouldn't be because there's a time and a place for mellow music. So again, trying hard not to be negative here. No, and I don't think you're being negative. I think that's a really good take on his music. The alto sax is a very soft saxophone. It's not that sort of blaring sax. It's got a little more sort of bass to it. And so... I totally agree with you and your thoughts on that album. It is sort of a kickback to the big band swing type albums and could even be categorized with the bop. Hmm. There's a few like reels and stuff where it kind of goes off into a little a bit of being experimental. But for the most part, it's very soft. You just remind me of my father-in-law, like when they come over and we eat dinner I'll put a record on. He'll say, put on some of that smooth jazz because he hates fusion. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> so Adderley would be something that I would definitely put on for him. And uh, yeah, I, I love that album. I think it's great. All right. Well, for the rest of the list, the only one I have notes on is Herbie Hancock. So okay, I'm not sure if you want to keep going through the entire list or if you want to skip a few. Let's do this. Let me go ahead and uh, finish out this list because there's there's only three more. And okay. uh, we'll get into Herbie Hancock because that goes into more of the fusion era and kind of yeah. more interesting to talk about those albums together. The next album I had was J.J. Uh, Johnson's The Eminent J.J. Johnson Volume 2. This guy is a trombone player. This album's from 1954. It's just a really cool bop album. It's funny, you, you hear someone play the trombone, and you think about hearing the slides each time you play the trombone. It's a really kind of funky instrument. But to hear somebody like enunciate each note and play it like it's a trumpet is really awesome and cool sounding, and that's what J.J. Johnson does. It will change the way you think about someone playing a trombone, so it's a really interesting take. Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie did an album together. Charlie Parker is a saxophonist. Dizzy Gillespie played a trumpet. And it's probably better known for looking like almost like a French horn. If you've ever seen pictures of it. Oh, yeah. It's kind of twisted and shoots up. But mm -hmm. they did an album together uh, in 1952 called Bird and Diz. Of course, Charlie Parker's nickname was Bird and Diz, Dizzy Gillespie. It's a fantastic compilation album that really highlights these two very well. Most people think Charlie Parker is probably the best trumpet player to ever live. Uh, I would say those people are sorely wrong, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's very, very good. But for me, I put my money on Miles Davis any day of the week. I, I love Davis. But um, that's that album from 1952. And then I thought I would throw in an album that actually had vocals and is more of that sort of big band feel. But this one's from 1960, and it's Ella Fitzgerald's Ella in Berlin, Mac the Knife. I think this is a fantastic live concert Ella has such a beautiful, beautiful voice. And if you're into that sort of loungy type jazz, it's not quite big band, but more of the lounge style, I would say that um, this is a wonderful live album that you should definitely check out. All right, Sean, do you want to get into the fusion part of the jazz that I recommended to you? 
Yeah, so Herbie Hancock Headhunters, this is kind of a funny one because I think this album, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you Google or if you look at Rolling Stone's best albums of all time, you're always going to see this album floating around. Yeah. And I think this is what you might call like a crossover hit as far as albums (laughs) that people who aren't really into jazz kind of know this album. As for me... I wanted to listen to it maybe for that reason, and I liked it quite a bit because it had, and I put in my notes here, it has a funky new wave feel, Mm -hmm. which kind of goes into my musical taste that I have already. But I also noted that it does have some very annoying parts, but that's the nature of experimental music is that sometimes it's going to have annoying parts. <laughs> so yeah. in general, this is one of the other albums out of the list that I quite enjoyed and will probably go back to. Awesome. So yeah, what's the story here? Well, Herbie Hancock was a session musician, which is how a lot of these guys start out. They're session musicians and then they start putting out their own stuff when they get discovered. He's got quite a few albums. One in particular that sticks out that I like also is called Maiden Voyage. And it's more of that modial free jazz that we were speaking about earlier. But later on, Herbie Hancock got into what's known as fusion jazz, which is basically jazz music fused with other things. In this case, with Headhunters, it's funk. It's a very, very funky album. But there are some like Africanized sounds in the album as well that you hear. And so that was sort of the big thing that was going on at the time. There was this sort of resurgence of Africanized music, ragtime, and Dixieland that sort of fused into the more like avant-garde and free jazz. Headhunters is just a great example of that. It's such a fun album to listen to. It's cool and it's quirky and it's experimental, but it's not too far off the deep end. Herbie Hancock had a hit in the uh, the mid '80s. I don't know if you remember it or not. It was called Rocket. Dun 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 dun. Yes, yes, I do remember that. So that was a big Herbie Hancock song. So to hear something like Headhunters and you know some of his early stuff like Maiden Voyage, it's funny to watch the Herbie Hancock progression and how he evolved. And it's always been doing experimental stuff. All right, so the next album I had on the list was another Miles Davis album, but this is actually a fusion album. Miles was able to make that transition and uh, was very successful, and one of his most successful is a double album called Bitches Brew from 1970. This is probably one of the best, if not the best, fusion albums ever created. I think it's fantastic. It's really, really experimental, a lot of fun. My father-in-law really hates it. (laughs) Some of these songs also ended up on a double LP called Live Evil, which was um, a live session of Miles Davis and, uh, you know, his cohorts. Uh, Another album, which I highly, highly recommend checking out. It's experimental jazz that goes back to uh, some of its African roots and just a really, really cool album. And then we'll get into our final album, Weather Report's Black Market from 1976. This was probably the most far out there album. This album is super synth heavy. It's from 1976. This is, you know, when a lot of that rock music was using these heavy, heavy synthesizers and moogs. 
It's a really cool album. It's very, very experimental, very, very off the beaten path. But uh, Weather Report was um, putting out some good albums around this time. Just to wrap it up, a few honorable mentions that I would like to talk about. And I didn't put this one on the list, and I don't know why I didn't. But Dave Brubeck's Time Out from 1959 is a fantastic album. It's recorded in five-fourths time. Uh, which was odd for that era. And some of you musicians may know a lot more about what that means. I understand the concept of time in music and how that's counted, but I don't understand the significance of that for this album. Yeah, that's not too out there. But yeah, most music that we know in like pop music and rock is in 4-4. Four, four, four. Four, so that 5-4 mm-hmm. yeah. is just a weird extra beat. Okay. So... It might sound a little off kilter as you're listening to it. So if they do it right, it could sound really cool. Thanks for that clarification. That's cool. Uh, Helps me understand it a little more. But uh, it's a very cool album. And um, a song on it called Take Five is very famous. And, you know, most people who've dabbled in jazz or heard jazz at some point have probably heard it or maybe even heard it in an elevator. And so the, the final musician that I wanted to mention is Billie Holiday. One of her albums that I like is called Lady Sings the Blues from 1956. It has probably one of my favorite songs on it. It was called uh, Strange Fruit. It's a very, very captivating song. It's um, uh, you know about strange fruit hanging from the trees, and it's a song uh, written by a Jewish American, and it's about lynching. Billie Holiday went through a lot of turmoil for doing this song. And so she was barred from a lot of places because of that. But, you know, she still stood by the song and played it live quite a lot, much to a lot of the uh, club owner's chagrin. Beautiful, beautiful voice. And uh, it's definitely an album I would say check out or any Billie Holiday compilation that you can find uh, would be good. You don't necessarily have to check out this specific album. But, uh, but yeah, that's it, man. Those are... uh, my suggestions, if you're looking to get into jazz, start a small little playlist on your Spotify or just pick up a few albums. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of my interest in jazz really accelerated when I got into graduate school. I was working at a bookstore and we sold a lot of used stuff. And there was this book called The Playboy Guide to Jazz by Neil Tesser. And yeah, this is one of those Playboys that you definitely do only read for the articles. (laughs) So um, Playboy gets a heavy knock as far as, um, you know, magazine that glorifies nudity. But originally Playboy was more of an educational magazine, you know, about what was going on in the music world, the theater and things like that. So they've always had great articles. It is sort of the joke. I only read Playboy for the articles, right? But they have really good staff writers. And uh, one of their staff writers decided to do this guide to jazz. And it is fantastic. So if you're even considering dipping your toe into this genre, I heavily suggest picking up this book. It's really cheap. It can be found on eBay. I actually just picked up a new copy because I've lost mine. Again, it's called The Playboy Guide to Jazz by Neil Tesser and definitely worth checking out. But uh, yeah, Sean, thanks, man. I appreciate it. I know this wasn't your cup of tea uh, as far as listening experiences go, but I appreciate you being a good sport, man, and checking some of these out. And I hope at least I've got you some new dinner time music. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And I will just throw in one suggestion. My favorite jazz album is the Cowboy Bebop soundtrack. So <laughs> <laughs> Very nice, man. No, it's very good. Yeah. Yeah, I love Cowboy Bebop, man. Great show. 
All right. Well, let's get into news. So this isn't a correction because it wasn't anything that we got wrong. At the time, Sony had announced that they were pulling down the PlayStation Store interfaces for the PSP, Vita, and PS3. But after enough public backlash and outcry or whatever you want to call it, they reversed course on the PS3 and Vita. They're still going to take down the stores for the PSP, which most people are okay with that because... You know, the PSP is very old at this point. Mm-hmm. This is more of an update than anything, is that they reverse course because of public outcry. But to me, this just is something that will eventually happen no matter what. Instead of this summer, it's going to be maybe a couple of years from now. So I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Uh, no, not really. I mean... I'm assuming this wasn't some ploy just to sell more stuff on the PS Store, right? <laughs> well, you wouldn't be the first one to speculate <laughs> about that because for sure a lot of people went on and went on mm-hmm. shopping sprees to kind of get it while they could, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know if this is like that urban legend about Coca-Cola making new Coke on purpose to tank their sales and come back with Coke classic. (laughs) I don't really think that was what happened. I think they really just wanted to shut down the stores. But what is interesting is that a, a kind of different story has developed out of this. And that is that there's a battery in your PS3 and also in your PS4. It's called the CMOS battery. It's a regular CR2032, very common disc battery that syncs with a clock online. And it's in your system to sync trophy data with PlayStation's servers so that you're not messing around with trophies and cheating or whatever. What has been discovered is that if this CMOS battery dies and your system is offline your system is basically a brick. And they discovered this even with PlayStation 4. And I want to shout out a particular YouTube channel called uh, Hikiko Mori Media. He was the one that I think kind of broke this story. And then other bigger channels like Spawn Wave and some other ones did videos where they actually did teardowns of PS4s, took out the CMOS battery, and threw a disc. And I'm talking digital and physical games will not work in your system. Wow. Yeah, so this is kind of big news, and everybody's worried or wondering how Sony is going to handle this. And at the time of this recording, as far as I know, they have not even so much as acknowledged it. So this is a very interesting development because we've talked about this for years, the whole physical versus digital thing and collecting games as a means of having them no matter what happens as far as online stores and whatnot. So this is really intriguing and also just really bad news any way you slice it. As a quick aside, I want to say there is a contingent of people who are saying, oh, this is no big deal. You're not going to be playing your PS4 by the time this all goes down. And, and I just want to say to those people, please fuck off and please stop <laughs> using the Internet and communicating with other human beings because you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, my Super Nintendo is going to work forever. Let's just put it down right there. Old hardware still works to this day. So if you want to say like, 
Oh, you won't be playing your PS4 in 25 years. Who the hell are you to say that? Rich, you're still playing Ataris. Fucking you know? Atari. <laughs> <laughs> I just modded one. <laughs> right. So it's troubling. Like, I don't know how else to put it. Like Sony, this is something they could just patch out. They could just patch out this requirement. So this trophies have to sync. They could just remove that so that your PS3 and PS4 can work offline. If this battery dies, everything's fine. The only other alternative, if you want your system to work quote unquote forever is to mod it. So in one respect, I'm okay because I do have a modded PS3 but as far as my PS4, like I hate the thought that my PS4 is just a brick waiting to happen. That's very interesting. So let's say it were to brick. Is that reversible if Sony were to do something or is that non-reversible once it happens? Yeah. So that actually you bring up a great point. Like brick is probably not the right term because when you say brick that you bricked your system or you bricked your phone, it means you screwed up while you were modding it and it's irreversible damage. Right. That's, that's what we call a brick. So using the term more loosely, just meaning that your system won't work under these conditions. What some people are speculating is that if Sony doesn't patch this, you might see the way we have like xbox live on the original xbox or playstation 2 people playing socom on like private servers that mm -hmm. somebody will probably just put up a private server that you can ping to and it's going to say okay your trophies are synced go forth and play your games like it'll mm. probably be some hackers that put something up that you can connect to so it's like a phone break hopefully yeah <laughs> all right <laughs> thanks for clarifying that man yeah well, that's uh, cool and disheartening news. So uh, thanks for that, Sean. Yeah, hopefully we'll have an update on that in the coming months. <laughs> awesome. Well, do we want to get into pickups? Oh, boy. Yeah, I got so many. <laughs> it's so funny how... <laughs> I can never tell if you're joking anymore. <laughs> no, the way things go month to month, I can say, well, sorry, nothing this month. But this month I got so many pickups and so many games I played. It's not even funny. Can I go first? Absolutely. Okay, so I picked up a Nintendo Switch. Yay! <laughs> so I think I said this on the show, on one of our previous shows, that my Switch broke. It bricked, in the true sense of the word, it bricked. <laughs> and um, I took your lead and just sold it broken because people pay good money for broken Switches. Mm -hmm. And I waited until... I could get one at retail because I didn't want to pay scalper prices. So it took me a little while and I got the Animal Crossing edition of the Nintendo Switch. I'm not an Animal Crossing fan in any way. My wife played the GameCube one, but it's not our thing. But I thought the dock looked kind of cool and the Joy-Cons are kind of a pastel blue and green. You're a fan of cute shit, so yeah. That played into it for sure. Yeah. And also, it was the one that was available. So that's the one I got. <laughs> uh, so I'm finally back into having a Switch and converting, you know, throwing my SD card back in and re-downloading all my games and getting my account on there really wasn't that hard. So I'm back into it. So one thing I noticed was that as with many systems, the video game prices are going just berserk right now. 
and certain Switch games are just going off. I noticed that the Xenoblade Chronicles Part 2 and the Torna DLC that got its own disc is like just in the triple digits now. So I was like, oh man, I'm glad I got my copies of those. What are some other games out there that I better get my hands on before they just go out there? So I got a copy of Deadly Premonition 2. Nice. Which I've been talking about forever, so I really wanted to get that in my collection. I got Bravely Default 2, and I got Octopath Traveler. Nice. So... As far as Switch games go, physical Switch games, my shelf, the way I have it arranged, I really don't have room for anything else, so I just hope no more games come out that I want for it, because <laughs> <laughs> I can't buy <laughs> There will be sacrifices. Yeah. So I have two original Xboxes, and I have been kind of wanting to soft mod one of them for a long time, and to do that, you need a few things you need a copy of splinter cell or there's like four or five compatible games that you can do this trick with you need a cable that will run from the controller port to a usb female and then you need a particular kind of usb thumb drive and it has to be an extremely small amount of memory so i'm talking about like 500 megabyte usb thumbsticks so I bought the controller cable to USB like a long time ago with the intentions of doing this mod. And I always had a copy of Splinter Cell. So I was kind of ready to rock. But out of all my USB drives, I didn't have any that would work. So I kind of gave up pretty quickly. But for whatever reason, I was inspired recently to try this again. So I actually went on Amazon. And if you search like USB thumb drive original Xbox, you can get these cheap like five packs of ones that'll work. The Xbox is so finicky that you can actually get a pack of the same exact kind of USB stick. And some of them will work and some of them won't. So luckily, I just got a cheap pack of these and the first one i tried worked so i was pretty happy with that so i soft modded my xbox cool now what so (laughs) i i looked online and i started looking into upgrading the hard drive because the hard drives in original xbox tend to be around 10 gigabytes which is not a lot for backing up games original xbox games tend to go you know, one to four gigabytes, I wanted to upgrade to something bigger. So started looking around and decided to go with a already like prepared hard drive, which had emulators and stuff on it, games already on it. So I went on Etsy and I found this guy called Custom Xbox Direct and I ordered a two terabyte hard drive from him. And he said, look, I only do these for hard modded Xboxes. Like if you know how to solder, you should hard mod your Xbox. And I said, nope, don't know how to solder. (laughs) Sorry, it's soft mod or no sale. So he said, all right, I will prepare this drive for you for your soft mod. Nice. So I got the drive. And again, I'm sorry this is a long story, but I find it very interesting. And I'm kind of telling the story to illustrate what a good job this guy did. That's cool, man. You're like the Martha fucking Stewart of mod. (laughs) 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 All right. So I got the drive. I took my Xbox apart, put it in. 
I'm so excited. I turned it on and I got this green screen of death. Like there, you know, your hard drive is not working, blah, blah, blah. And when you get a hard drive error on your Xbox, there should be an error code on the screen. And I wasn't even getting the error code. Mm. So I reached out to the guy. We tried a million different things. I even had to revert my Xbox to factory and remod it with a different version of the mod software, or I should say firmware, to match what he had done to the hard drive. So that was our first like troubleshooting thing. In any event, I couldn't get it working whatsoever. And he said, I think the drive was damaged in shipping. I'd like to send you another one. And I said, no, man. The box was perfectly intact. There was no damage to the box. Like the way you packed it was awesome. It's not that. And I said, how about I send you the Xbox and you just fix the drive, fix the Xbox, get me up and running and send it back to me. And he actually agreed to do that. So I sent him my Xbox and it turns out that the hard drive he sent me was damaged. So nothing we did would have got it working. And... He said, look, while I have your Xbox, I'm going to do the hard mod on it. Your Xbox will be forever unlocked because Xbox has these like checks and balances. Like if the DVD drive fails, even if you're never using it, the Xbox won't work. (laughs) So, you know, the hard mod completely removes any security from the thing. He put the drive in, sent it back to me, and uh, it was glorious. I get it. I hook it up. I turn it on, and I couldn't believe my eyes. The menus are so beautiful. Everything I was seeing was so beautiful. So the first thing I do is go into a game, and I go in the menus, and there's this thing that says preview, and I'm like, wow, does it play like a trailer for the game? So I go to it, and the whole system crashes, and then I was like, Oh, whoops. So I turned it off, turned it back on, and it won't boot up. And I was like, oh, "Oh my goodness. Did I just brick this Xbox that I just got? (laughs) So I reached out to him and told him exactly what I did to make that happen. And he looked it up and he said, you just found like a needle in a haystack as far as errors go. Let's just reload the firmware back on. So In a sense, he actually taught me how to add and remove software onto this thing, which I really needed to know how to do anyway to add games and music, which is one of the awesome things about this. When you fire it up, it plays from a random playlist of music that you've put into a folder. So I turn it on and Daft Punk starts rocking out or Mannequin (laughs) starts rocking out. So it's awesome. So finally got everything working. And again, I just want to shout out custom Xbox direct on Etsy. We must have had a hundred messages back and forth and emails. He ended up emailing me because I had, he had to send me some files and whatnot, but he really like taught me how to be a master Xbox hacker. So I really, really appreciate the guy. And I, would say like if you want to do business with him he answers all messages very quickly and it was just nothing but helpful and through all the trials and tribulations with this hard drive i finally got it working and and as you'll see when we get to games played this has been one of my favorite consoles to mess around with and play games on And I do want to say, just public service announcement, this all kind of started, I know I said I bought the gear to do this mod a long time ago, but there's a thing in the original Xboxes called a uh, clock capacitor, and these things will blow up and leak acid all over your motherboard. 
not all Xboxes have them, so you have to look up which model you have and if they have this capacitor inside. Best way to do it is to solder them off, but as I mentioned previously, I don't know how to solder. So I did learn how to take apart an original Xbox by watching a video on how to get this clock capacitor out. And I'll say, don't worry if you don't know how to solder. My method that I would recommend is to take a needle nose plier. Just rip it out. <laughs> right. When you know yeah. where it is, just gently grip the capacitor with the needle nose. And what I did was just kind of twist it a little bit yep. back and forth. Just twist and twist and twist and twist. And it'll eventually just kind of release itself when the contacts break. And then after that, you just want to clean it with a little alcohol or vinegar and you're good to go. So if you have an original Xbox and you haven't done that at the bare minimum, you might want to make sure you do that. What it was, Rich, was when we played Fatal Frame 2, actually, because I, I played it on my Xbox. I talking about that, yeah. Yeah, so that was the first time in a long time I had fired up either one of my consoles. So, yeah, I've had this long, just this long adventure with original <laughs> Xbox and uh, it's been awesome, and I've learned so much. So, well, when you learn how to mod that tray, let me know what tray. <laughs> every Xbox I've had, like you hit the release button to for the tray to come out, and it oh, won't yeah, pop yeah. out. You have to like push against it as you're hitting it at the same time. I know a lot of people have that problem. That is a very common problem, and actually it's an easy fix. So I haven't had to do this, but I, in my travels, I looked into it a little bit. It's just the band or the, the belt, travels. I should say. You're like Anthony yeah, Bourdain well, now. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Well, I don't want <laughs> to take after him you too don't much. Go that but route. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can replace the belt pretty easily on those. So that might be something you want to look into. All right. Good to know. So I got a few more pickups. I did mention last month the films of Satoshi Kon and how I was only missing Tokyo Godfathers as far as his films. I did look up and he was involved with more films than the ones that I mentioned. But as far as his like main and like best known series of films that he directed, I now have them all on Blu-ray. So cool. that's pretty cool. And then I got a couple of packages in the mail that were pretty awesome. So, Rich, you were kind enough to send me a copy of Haruki Murakame's latest book, Killing Commendatory. Yes. And uh, I haven't read it yet, but I've heard it's very good. It's you obviously read it. Man. So. It's one of his best. I really feel that way. Awesome. I can't wait to read it. I got to admit, with Murakami, I maybe made a mistake by reading 1Q84 first because <laughs> it's been diminishing returns since then mm -hmm. but i still call him like one of my favorite authors it just seems like each book i read by him is a little less than the one previous to that you know what i mean yeah i'll say this and you know kind of going with that thought is that the last two books that he's released that i've read by him i've been a lot more impressed by those books then I had a lot of his earlier works like Norwegian Wood and uh, Kafka on the Shore, Wild Cheap Chase and, you know, some of those other books. So I think he's sort of oddly hitting his stride late in his career. So this is pretty cool. Awesome. I got to check it out. Yeah. 
And there was also some other cool stuff in there, a little Joker figurine that I put up on the <laughs> mantle and uh, a new RFG Playcast mug to add to my other one in the collection. So that was pretty cool. And I really appreciate that. Awesome. I've got a few more. So if anybody wants to purchase one, hit me up on uh, social media. Be glad to help you out. Awesome. My last pickup was another parcel that came in from my friend Tyler. Now, I think I've told this story on the show before. My friend Tyler from back in New Jersey, he has this routine. He goes to his parents' house, digs up games, and says, hey, do you want this? Because if you don't, I'm going to throw it in the garbage. And I say, bro, <laughs> just send me that. Just send, just send me all. that stuff, please. So that's actually how I got an extra copy of Albert Odyssey. And that's the reason you have a disc copy of Al Albert true. Odyssey, because that's where I got it from. He had given me the case and manual and I really wanted to complete it. So I had bought a copy on eBay. Then he found his original copy, which is the one you have. So anyway, he sends me a picture of Diablo on the PS1 and Final Fantasy VIII. And I was like, oh, cool. I'll take those. Yeah, sure. <laughs> My thoughts, Rich, was, oh, nice. Diablo on the PS1. I sold a copy of that a couple of years ago, and it was like 40 bucks. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so he sends me the package, and it had a bunch of stuff in it, actually. He sent those two games, and then Time Splitters 2. Mm -hmm. There were two copies of Lord of the Rings, the two towers for PS2, which was hilarious. Uh, there was this game called Legion, The Legend of Excalibur for PS2, which I actually have a loose disc of, so I might just sell this. This is a Midway game. I've never played it, but I love Midway games on the PS2, so I should probably check it out. And then also Night Warriors Dark Stalkers Revenge on the Sega Saturn. Now, this unfortunately is just a loose disc, but this is one I'm probably going to hold on to because yeah. I don't have too many Sega Saturn games and... Why not? Those are fun fighting games, man. They're really yeah. great. It's in the Darkstalker series. So lo and behold, I take Diablo on PS1 and I look it up and thank goodness this is one of those games that has just like tripled in value in the past <laughs> year or so. So that's just sitting on my eBay account right now. And I insisted to my friend Tyler, I said, please give me your PayPal so I can send you some money. And he just is being stubborn. He said, look, man, my parents will throw this crap in the garbage. So he refuses to take my money. So I'm just going to have to send him some stuff. Sigh. I need more friends like Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> I should really sell my copy of Diablo. I'm never going to play it on the PS1. I just hear it's awful and really just a game for collectors. And there's no yeah. reason it's in my collection. So I should definitely get rid of it. Yeah. Exactly. So that's my pickups. Thanks for listening. I know that was a lot. I really wanted to tell the story of the Xbox hard drive, though. It's, it's one of the more interesting things that has happened to me in the video game realm in a little while. Very awesome. All right, man. Well, a bit of news before I start with my pickups. I just want to talk about some local news that I had, and it's that I did the Geekapalooza, the second one. So a lot of these pickups are going to be from that event. The first event I mentioned was sort of so-so. We had sort of an average crowd, a lot of vendors. This event was so awesome. So many more participants, so many more people came. We had a lot more time to drum it up, and so 
it was a very, very successful event. All the vendors that were there, all the people that came to it were very, very happy. And so as someone who organizes these things, you can't ask for anything more than that. I've actually been asked to do another one in early June, June 5th in Winston-Salem, Camel CD Collectors Con. Unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to be able to attend it, but I've been in contact with the store owner and really cool guy. And I told him, you know, even though I'm not going to be able to attend, I'm still going to help you see this thing through. It should be a great event. It's going to be more like sort of uh, vintage clothing, toys, video games, and just all kinds of geek-related stuff. So should be a fun, fun event. So speaking of pickups, uh, I picked up a copy of Mega Man Zero and Tactics Ogre for the Game Boy Advance from Geekapalooza 2. I also picked up a copy of Megalit on the Game Boy. For the 360, I picked up Red Dead Redemption Undead Nightmare which was a big effing mistake because I already had the Red Uh. Dead Redemption pack with like all of those games in it on the 360 and I did not realize it. So there was that. Yeah, but it happens. I picked up a copy of Namco Museum Virtual Arcade. Why, you ask? Because it has the game King and Balloon on it that I talked about, and I wanted to practice up to beat that asswad's high score at Winners and Losers. <laughs> so right. I picked that up. <laughs> on the PS1, I picked up Death Trap Dungeon, Speed Racer, Hercules Action Game, Cat in the Hat, Monster Seed, and Vigilante 8 Second Offense. I picked all of those up at the Geekapalooza event. So that was a very successful PS1 haul for me. And of course, I said I was done collecting PS1 games at the time. Not so much. I guess I had to get a few more. I think I've got like one more on my list I'm looking for, and it's Nightmare Creatures 2. So if anybody has a lead on one of those, please let me know. And then the final PS1 games I got were pretty heavy hitters. Mega Man Legends 1 and 2. Got them for some great prices. One of them came from a friend online, and then the other one came from an eBay auction that I threw a low bid on and just happened to win. So very happy with having those two games. On the Genesis, I picked up complete copies of Blaster Master 2, Chase HQ2, and my buddy Cameron, who does the theme music for our show, actually visited a few weeks ago and gave me a copy of Micro Machines on the Genesis and also a copy of Soul Divide for PS1, which he says is a really good sleeper-type game. On the Switch, I picked up Bomb Chicken, Rico, and Retro City Rampage, the first and the last of those games, at the Geekapalooza event. And for the SNES, I picked up a copy of Maui Mallard in Cold Shadow. And my friend Cameron and I actually played a good bit of that game, and so I will be talking about that a little later. On the 2600, I picked up a homebrew called Aardvark, which is a game that they had started designing for the 2600, but they never finished, and somebody kind of took that project over and made the game and is selling it on Atari Age. Picked up some Sears text label variants, Code Breaker, Dare Diver, Memory Match, Outer Space, and Poker Plus. I've only got one more Sears text label variant to get, and that's a copy of a game called Cannon Man. Right now, that 
single game is selling for about 130 bucks, which is completely ridiculous. I don't like paying that much for Atari games. There's a game called Human Cannonball in the 2600. It's the same game. It's just the text variant. So I'm hoping that I can find that somewhere for a better price. And then at the event, my big takeaway from that and final pickup of the month was a Rygar yo-yo that someone was selling. Now this oh, was a cool. Yeah, it was a promotional yo-yo for the PlayStation 2 Rygar game. And as many people listen to the show know, Rygar on the NES is one of my favorite NES games. It's in my top 10, possibly top 5. And so when I saw this yo-yo on this guy's table, I just had to have it. I was like, dude, how much is that? That is one of the coolest pieces I've ever seen. I have it up on my little display shelf with all my Game Boys and stuff. And uh, yeah, that's it, man. Those are my pickups for the month. Awesome stuff. And Rygar on the PS2 is known uh, as kind of a hidden gem. It's like a hack and slash God of War type game. So if you never check that out, you know, I've heard it's pretty good. Yeah, I've played a bit of it before in the past and I didn't get too far in it, but I really liked what I played. The controls are a little bit janky, but not a bad game. It looks good. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get into what are you playing? I don't want to weigh down the conversation too much, but <laughs> I will try to go fast through these. I'll assume that I can go first just because I, I I think I got it like nine or ten games here. Um, Chronicles of Riddick, Escape from Butcher Bay. I talked about this in the last show, and I wrote a kind of casual review of it for the blog. So check that out if you want my thoughts on it. I approve of the game. I did have some frustrations with it, but it's definitely worth checking out. I played it on the PS3, but this is known as an original Xbox kind of classic. Next, I played Astral Chain, or I should say I'm playing Astral Chain, but unfortunately, I don't really like this game, and I really want to like it because it's a platinum-developed game. It's an anime game. You can play as a female character. It really ticks all the boxes of what I like in a game and what I should like. But man, every time I play it, I just get kind of frustrated and there's all these long cutscenes, and it only feels like a platinum game when you're in combat and that seems to be very few and far between. I mention it because I keep picking it up like once or twice a week, but man, I don't know if I'm going to finish this one. And it's supposed to be like 20 hours long and I'm only in like the third level. So, oof, yeah. <laughs> That's Astral Chain. <laughs> uh, so let's get into the original Xbox marathon that I've been on. So, of course, like I said, I got this banging original Xbox, like the ultimate machine, man. You throw it on. You got a million games to look at. You got music blaring. You can play whatever you want. I just love it. It's so beautiful. So the first game I played off of it was the first game alphabetically as soon as you turn on the console, which is 007 Agent Under Fire. It's kind of fun to go back and play games like this because you think this is what a AAA game was in 2001. You know, this is 20 years ago when EA owned the James Bond property. They had a string of games. And playing it now in 2021, you can definitely see the age because 
there's no checkpoints or very few checkpoints in the mission. So if you die near the end of a mission, you might get sent all the way back to the beginning or maybe halfway through. It really doesn't have the modern checkpointing that we're used to. So that can get pretty frustrating. Plus, I didn't realize that it has a really unintuitive default control scheme and i didn't realize you could change it until about halfway through the game it's a first person shooter and it sets up with the right stick being strafe which is really hard to get used to but i did get used to it and then i realized you can change the configuration so that was a little annoying and frustrating but it was my mistake that i didn't check in the first place Next game I played was Tomb Raider Legend, and this may be one of my favorite games that I've played in a very long time. So we actually have an episode on Tomb Raider 2013. People want to go back and check that out. I'm actually not a fan of the original core-developed series of Tomb Raider games for the PS1 because I always felt that the controls were really weird and the Mm -hmm. puzzles too obtuse i'm not a fan of environmental puzzles i never liked the way you had to like line up a jump and then run and jump perfectly like that's not the kind of platform i'm into like this weird technical platforming stuff that was in those games so between tomb raider 2013 and when core stopped developing these games What happened was Core made Tomb Raider Angel of Darkness and it was just kind of a broken mess and Eidos, who was the publisher, actually took the game away from Core and had Crystal Dynamics develop Tomb Raider Legend and Crystal Dynamics to this day develops the Tomb Raider games. So that's a bit of interesting history there that I kind of have skipped over in my fandom of the Tomb Raider series because basically in my mind i was like well i never liked those old games so why would i play tomb raider legend i never kind of put it together that no i like 2013 well enough that that was developed by the same developer as this other reboot that they did in in around 2006 starting with tomb raider legend so even though I own this Tomb Raider trilogy, which is Legend, Anniversary, and Underworld on the PS3, which, by the way, is a great value and still has not really shot up in price. You can get this for about 20 bucks on the PS3, and I say it's worth every penny. Tomb Raider Legend, first of all, it's just a really fun game, and the controls are modernized, and the story is kind of comic booky, and also it's very convenient for the modern player, whereas in the 007 game, it almost never checkpoints. With Tomb Raider Legend, it checkpointed constantly, <laughs> like <laughs> almost nice. too generous, but yeah, it was very nice, very convenient. And uh, man, I love this game. It looks beautiful even on the original Xbox one of the best character models for lara croft like her face just looks beautiful of course her body looks beautiful too without sounding too creepy but that's what she's known for that kind of sex appeal just great visuals all over this game and a cool story great voice acting i really can't speak highly enough about this game i enjoyed every minute of it i played a game called 25 to life which is just a really crappy max Payne ripoff Kind of don't recommend it. The story is really bad. The characters are unlikable and nobody to look up to. It's just kind of in that vein of San Andreas around that time. There was a lot of like gangsta games, for lack of a better term, kind of ripping off the San Andreas themes. 
what makes this one interesting is it, it was a Xbox Live online game that also had a campaign. So the campaign was kind of tacked on, which is totally understandable. Uh, but you can play as the main character who is a gangster. And then there's levels where you play as the cops. So you're either playing as a gangster running around massacring police officers or you're playing as a police officer massacring gangsters. So it's just so hateful all around. But it was just a dumb like Max Payne ripoff. Next, I played another 007 game, 007 Nightfire, which is one that came after Agent Under Fire. Nightfire is a huge step up from Agent Under Fire. Still had some frustrating parts, still had some points where it went way too long without checkpoints, especially there's this one infamous level where you're driving a car that's actually a submarine, and it's a very long level. And I got all the way to the end of the level, and you have to fight this actual submarine and when i got to him the first time he took me out and i was so mad because when you die and then you get taken back to the very beginning of the mission your heart just sinks and you're like oh no (laughs) you know what i mean yes so there were some parts like that in this game but still huge huge step up from agent under fire and uh would highly recommend night fire next one i played was called air force delta storm this is a pretty good ace combat ripoff so air force delta is a series that i believe started on the dreamcast and there are entries on the ps2 and uh, this one on the xbox this is a konami published series so whereas ace combat is bandai namco this is konami's kind of take on the aerial dogfighting modern dogfighting games and i actually liked it a lot not nearly as good as any Ace Combat game, but kind of did its own thing, and I really liked it. It has this almost like Super Mario World or Super Mario 3 map system where to go th- from mission to mission, you have to actually go along the map and fight these minor battles to get to the main missions. There's a little bit of resource management there and it definitely adds to the challenge. If you have an original Xbox and you see this one out in the wild, definitely worth picking up. Cool. And then I played Metal Gear Solid 2, which mm-hmm. is going to be our game for June. So I wanted Excited. to get in and... Oh, man. <laughs> I I can't wait to do the episode on this show for so many reasons, because this is a game that has had a renaissance in recent years. It's a game with such a fascinating history. When it came out, people were so disappointed in it for the character change, but now it's looked at as an absolute classic and a prophetic take on the technology of today, which is kind of crazy when you look at it. And I can't wait to like do a deep analysis on this game for the show with you. So I did a quick run through on the very easy difficulty, but... Very easy removes a lot of the gameplay elements. So I'm going to do another run through or at least attempt one on normal or whatever. Uh, I just wanted to get through it real quick. And then lastly, Tomb Raider Anniversary. That's the second game in the first Crystal Dynamics trilogy where they did a full remake of the original Tomb Raider game, the first one. So I'm playing that currently. Again, liking it very much. It's a little bit deeper on the puzzles because, again, it's a remake of the very first game. So those puzzles are 
pretty challenging and there are some what the hell am I supposed to do moments, which I'm not a huge fan of. But, you know, I've been playing it for a little while and I haven't had to look at a walkthrough yet. And again, this game checkpoints every two seconds, so I don't have to worry about screwing up. I'm just running around swinging and climbing and doing all that tomb raiding stuff and I'm really enjoying it. So that's what I'm currently playing. Very nice. Well, speaking of modding, your buddy Rich has been doing a little modding himself. No way. Yes way. You might be the Martha Stewart, but I might be the Snoop Dogg of modding. Awesome. <laughs> Can't wait to hear this. So I modded one of my many 2600s that I own. I own several extra ones. Every time I go to my honey hole, they will sit out Atari 2600s. And they'll be 5 to $10. And they'll say as is for parts. But typically what that means is it came in without any cords. So it usually works. So I picked up a four-switch Woody and decided that I was going to try my first mod, changing it over to composite. Everything went very well. And I want to give a shout-out to our good friend Duke Retro Nonsense. On his channel, he modded one of his Atari 2600s, and I've been wanting to do this for years. I had the kit for probably two years since he did the video, and finally got the courage to use his video. And then I also Googled a few things because sometimes the cords can be different colors. But a uh, very successful mod, and uh, we hooked it up to the big Trinitron TV in my kid's playroom, and my wife myself, my nine-year-old son, and my four-year-old son were playing some awesome four-player warlords on it and having a blast. Our friend Duke had some problems with color when he did the mod. It kind of made the colors a little darker. I also noticed that problem on the TV in my kid's playroom, but when I first tested it out on the TV in my game room, the colors were fine. So I think it may have something to do with the type of TV you use. Not really sure on that, but it was just something that I noticed, like in one TV it was darker than it was on another. So, you know, it may be something to do with the color or a way that you can adjust it, but I just wanted to point that out. While I had it going, my nine-year-old son and I also played an Atari 2600 game called Entombed. It's one of my favorite two-player games on the 2600. It's sort of a racing maze game where you can actually break out walls if you get trapped. And so you have to be smart and you have to conserve your wall breaks. And basically what it is, it's a vertical scrolling game, but instead of scrolling up, it scrolls down. And so if you get caught at the top of the screen, your player dies and you lose the game. And there's also some monsters and stuff within the game that can kill you. So it's a lot of fun to play against someone else. I mentioned before that my buddy Cameron came over. He, he was down from Nashville, Tennessee for a few days, and we were able to uh, hook up one night and stay up and play a bunch of Genesis games and some Super Nintendo games. And one in particular that we played a good bit of and almost got to the end of was Maui Mallard in Cold Shadow, which I had mentioned picking it up. It's a really cool Super Nintendo game. It can be had for under 50 bucks. The graphics are gorgeous. 
It's got some neat gameplay mechanics in it, but the issue with it is it plays a lot like Earthworm Jim. You know how Earthworm Jim is sort of janky as far as the shooting and as far as the, the movements and jumping? And so this game is basically the same way. It's beautiful, and I think they wanted to animate it really nicely. But because of that, it comes off kind of poor as far as the platforming is concerned. So it's a game that I definitely recommend adding to your collection. You know, proceed with caution. It's not the best platformer out there. And then, of course, I've been playing Axiom Verge this month uh, for our playthrough. I've been playing that with my son. And uh, one of the more awesome things that I remembered about Axiom Verge is that I'm playing on the Switch, but the Multiverse Edition that I have on my PS4 actually has a map with it where all the items are, which is awesome. Uh, nice. So, yeah. So uh, I've been using that in my most recent playthrough, and my son has really loved being my guide through the game. I'm three quarters of the way through that game right now and uh, can't wait to talk about that next month. And then the final game that I've played, Sean, was a little game called King and Balloon. That's right. Your buddy Rich went back to Wieners and Losers to <laughs> seek revenge on the high yes. score of 33,000. So what happened? Well, played it a few times, got 34,000, broke the score. The guy that owns the place said, hey, Rich, you want to go ahead and take your picture with this and want me to go ahead and log in your high score? I was like, Nah, nah, nah. I want to make this guy cry when he sees this high <laughs> score. So I put up a score of 40,280 on this machine before I left. I actually beat the high score three times that evening and put the highest one up. I was able to use my milkshake-sucking picture from the last time <laughs> I was there because the owner was like, I'm not going to take your picture again. Just send me that one that you have you sucking that milkshake. It's great. And so he posted it on Facebook, and everybody was like, man, that is the most awesome picture ever. And then another guy said, you're not supposed to get that close to the arcade machines with milkshakes. That's funny. As I responded underneath VIP treatment. Yeah. And so what's funny. <laughs> and so what's funny is the guy's score I broke posted on it as well. He seems like a nice guy. It'll be a uh, kind of a friendly competition, probably going back and forth with this game. But uh, you, Matthew, I beat your score. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs>
All right, so let's get into our main topic of discussion. Our game for the month is Transistor. And as usual, we're going to start with the question of the month. To participate, follow me at, at RFGPlaycast on Twitter, at Sean Gray on Instagram. That's S H A W N G R A Y. Join our Discord by clicking the link on the front page of RFGeneration.com. Or just follow the discussion thread, which if you're playing the game, you're already in. Let's get right into it. Now, Rich, I got to tell you, this is a definite situation of you were right and I was wrong. (laughs) Oh, I would say that. (laughs) Because I wanted to ask a question about freezing time, because that's kind of one of the main mechanics of Transistor. And I said, let's say... What would you do if you could freeze time for 30 seconds? And you said, well, why don't we say just freeze time in general? And I said, no, don't say that because then people will just say I would catch up on sleep or do boring stuff like play video games and stuff. And uh, I insisted that we frame the question as follows. You have the power to stop time for everyone and everything except yourself for 30 seconds one use per day. What are your plans? And I thought the 30 second thing would kind of force creativity in people. And I will never, ever talk shit on people who respond to our questions. So I'm just going to say that what I thought I was afraid of, these <laughs> responses are even worse than that. So let's go right into it. Really? Yeah, so on Twitter, Jonathan Chapman said that would be 30 seconds that I could use in the bathroom and not have someone call me on Teams. (laughs) All right. (laughs) (laughs) Disgruntled employee much? Yeah. Next we have Kelsey, uh, Crabmaster. He said, if it's only 30 seconds, I would probably mostly use it to drop a fart in an interesting (laughs) situation and then get out to a safe distance to watch the results unfold. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of my favorite answers of all time. (laughs) Yep. That was a good one. All right. Moving over to the discord. We have a very similar answer from Metal Fro. He said, potty break. And I said, man, you could do that whenever. And he called me out. He said, true, but there's not much you can do in 30 seconds. Give me 30 minutes and I'll come up with something more interesting. So (laughs) there's the problem. Engineer Mike, he said he would just enjoy those 30 seconds of quiet. So maybe (laughs) doing a little mini meditation. I, I can get with that. Uh, Corey, he responded via text. He said, uh, he would just use it to get out of bad situations. Like if somebody was giving him some gruff, he would just freeze time and use it to literally disappear. I think that's it. We didn't get any responses on the forum and nothing from Instagram. So those are the public responses. Very nice. Yeah. So let me hear yours because I, you know, I'm the, I I made my bet. I have to lie in it. I'll go last. Yeah. 30 seconds. That was kind of tough to think of something that I could do in 30 seconds. But what I ended up coming up with was I would move to Vegas and I would gamble. I thought that maybe roulette and craps would be good games to Paul's time at once a day and uh, move my bets if I needed to. 
I like this one. I think you would probably eventually get caught somehow, even though this kind of doesn't exist in our world. So it would appear as this aberration. And maybe even people would just think it was a technical glitch because your bet would like move on the camera. But I like this answer because it's kind of unethical, but it's not immoral. You could be really evil with this power. And I like, even my wife said, you could rob a bank with this power. Even with 30 seconds, you could... You know, you could set yourself up to where you could take those 30 seconds to empty a cash box and be right back in line, let's say, and just have the money on your person and nobody would ever know. Yeah, my original thought was sucker punch soccer dads in the face, but I decided to go against that. Yeah, I mean, there's some soccer dads out there that (laughs) would love just a sucker punch and then I could just walk away and just keep watching the game like nothing happened. It would be great. Exactly. If you wanted to be really nasty, if you had a coworker or a boss or something, you could freeze time, jab them in the ribs, and then just go back to where you were. And then every day you could see them kind of like, ooh, why, is, why does my stomach hurt? You know? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so as for me, I think I would probably use this power to just be kind of a guardian angel a casper the friendly ghost to people maybe a friendly vigilante like if i saw something going on that i could help someone or prevent something bad from happening i would freeze time and take care of that one thing you would have to be kind of careful because freezing time to people who weren't frozen would appear as teleportation or disappearing, which would really freak people out. So you'd have to be very careful or you would be blowing your cover very quickly. So that's something to take into account. A lot of risk involved. You could get a costume though. Yeah. Be a superhero. And then if you freak people out, it would be okay. Exactly. So you could go that route. Yeah, definitely be the time Avenger and just embrace (laughs) it and come out with it. And uh, and approach it that way and not keep it a secret. So you could definitely do that. So, again, I appreciate people kind of contributing to what was not a great question. Thank you for helping me out. And uh, we'll do better next time. <laughs> <laughs> My other thought, too, along with the gambling was like doing things like in sports, like moving a baseball so that someone's yeah. back would hit it. I think that was on an episode of DuckTales, but uh, yeah, that would be great. And you could bet on the games, too. But you would have to travel to different games, and you would never know when that right moment would be if you could only do it once a day. Right on. Cool. So this question was inspired by our game of the month, which, I, as I noted, is Transistor, released in 2009 by Supergiant Games. Rich, you want to get into the, some of the nuts and bolts here? Sure thing. So Transistor was developed and published by Supergiant Games, who also did popular title Bastion, Pyre, and their newest game, Hades. From what I understand, all of these games are action-type RPGs. Supergiant Games was co-founded in 2009 in San Francisco by two former EA employees, Amir Rao and Gavin Simon. Transistor was first released in May of 2014 on the PS4 and Windows, on iOS in June of 2015, and on Switch in November 2015. 
Yeah, and I'm sorry, I misspoke earlier to save us a correction when I said 2009. That's when Supergiant formed, not when Transistor was released. So I just want to correct myself real quick on that. Yeah, and interestingly enough, they started out as a small team. And one of the things that's notable about Supergiant for me is that Greg Kasavin is one of the creative directors there. And he worked at GameSpot for a long time. And I really enjoyed his work as a journalist. And then he decided he wanted to get into development and uh, was part of Supergiant from the beginning. So I always thought that was pretty cool. I kind of liken Supergiant games to a very similar studio as Night School, which made Oxenfree. People from the industry, from bigger companies that wanted to go off and do their own thing, taking what they learned within those larger companies to kind of do the indie thing. Mm-hmm. So they're just kind of a smaller studio that develops and self-publishes. I know they self-published Transistor. I don't know if they've self-published all of their games, but I actually watched a really great uh, YouTube documentary from Noclip about Transistor, and that was really informative about the development of this game. So it took three years for them to make this game, and they really wanted to not just repeat what they did with Bastion. So Bastion was a really big hit for them, which is great because when you're an indie studio just starting off like that, it's good to have your first game be a success so you can make <laughs> more the games. Next one, yeah. Right, right. So they said specifically they had a lot of pressure to make Bastion 2, but they didn't want to do that. They wanted to come up with something completely new, not just in theme, but in gameplay. They struggled for a long time, and the reason there was such a long development cycle is because they were constantly like coming up with new ideas and throwing them out, just not being satisfied with what they were doing. One of the original versions of the game had the main character was going to be this male boxer character, mm. and he would have a companion that was kind of a proto version of Red, who ended up being our main character. But eventually they kind of changed that around one of the first ideas they had as a team was they were going to make like a fantasy rpg and they they said this was before bastion this was when they were brainstorming like games before they even really started doing anything they were brainstorming this idea of a fantasy rpg where a woman falls in love with a wizard the wizard gets attacked and killed and embodies the sword that the woman takes with her and wow they had that idea and just kind of sat on it, and they ended up pulling it out as the concept for Transistor. One of the last things I noted was that they described the aesthetic of Transistor, which we'll definitely get into even later with uh, graphics and sound and all that stuff, as Roaring Twenties meets Cyberpunk. And I think that's a kind of a great way to put it. And we talked about the kind of jazz aesthetic here, but we'll get into that later with the graphics and sound and presentation stuff. But yeah, Supergiant, even though I didn't really love Bastion, I know you liked it. That can be part of our history that we usually talk about. I played Bastion on the Vita, and I liked it. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I liked it. Um, But I wasn't like super enthusiastic about playing any of their other titles for this reason. However, I've always been like a cheerleader for them. I just kind of like what they're doing. They're a small crew, again, similar to night school. I'm just kind of rooting for them to do well, if that makes sense. And I like Greg Kasavin, so... 
that's where I'm at. So you liked Bastion, and I really want to hear more about that. I mean, I like Bastion. I thought it was a very clever game. I liked the way the world was built and how it would kind of fall around you as you played the game. There's definitely a lot of similarities between Bastion and Transistor, though. I think some of those things Transistor does a little better, and I'll probably talk about that as we go. I wouldn't say that I was in love with Bastion. I thought it was a decent game and a good game. But I feel like I probably liked it a little more than you did. I thought some of the um, leveling up of items and things like that was a little frustrating. These little trials that were inserted into the game. But overall, I liked the concept of it and I thought it was pretty cool. Awesome. Well, let's get into Transistor then. How about the story? Story in 60 seconds. Cloud Bank City. An unknown time in the future. You awake beside an inanimate body with a large sword extending from his midsection. You try to speak to him, but it's no good. He's dead, and besides, you've somehow lost your ability to speak anyway. In an act of compassion, you grab the hilt and remove the blade from the body. What? The sword talks? The man's voice and essence are bound inside of this circuit-like blade known as the transistor, a key item in unlocking the mystery of this new world. You soon find out that the city has been overrun by a robotic force known as the Process, and that a faction called the Camerata, who control them, are out to destroy you and obtain the Transistor. But, a digital hell is soon unleashed as the Camerata loses control over the Process. Will you join the Camerata to defeat the Process and save your world? Or is some other fate in store for CloudBank? Awesome. Good stuff. I got to be completely honest. During my playthrough, I had a hard time knowing what was going on and like understanding the story. In fact, a lot of things came together when I watched this YouTube video last night. Combined with, I didn't replay the whole game, but we should note the game has a new game plus where you can keep your abilities and, and replay the game. Yes. I did recently restart the game and some of the concepts started coming together but it was actually watching this documentary last night where i was like oh that's what it was <laughs> in a, for a lot of elements of this story so on your first playthrough was it as nebulous as i think it was or am i just an idiot no, I think it is fairly nebulous, and one of the things we'll talk about as we move through in discussing this game is the functions in the game. And functions are basically abilities that you take from deceased people. And these functions become a part of the transistor or the sword. So along with that, you get a little bit of the story behind everything through these functions, and it adds to it as you go through the game and address these different abilities through these functions. I know this sounds odd, but I, I think you know what I'm talking about, right? There's like oh, yeah. little stories that go along with each one. Yep. And so I think as you kind of review those, the story becomes a lot clearer as far as what's going on. There's a huge twist, say about three quarters through the game that happens, and that's pretty significant. But I think up until then, a lot of it is very, like you said, nebulous and 
hard to figure out. But all in all, this is one of your typical stories of this utopian world toppling into this dystopian universe, you know? Yeah, definitely. I really like the aesthetic when you say it falls into dystopia. It definitely does, but it's not like Bioshock in a way or Fallout Mm -hmm. where everything is in ruin. Everything still looks really slick. So it's more like that like Brave New World type dystopia where the infrastructure is still completely intact and it looks very beautiful. But there's this major corruption and problem that is going on and they're on the hunt for you. And that is where the battles come in with the gameplay. So I think we can probably move the discussion into the gameplay if you're good with that. Well, I I do want to say I, I disagree a little bit with what you're saying about the infrastructure staying solid because much like the game's name transistor it feels like the environment is almost like you're on a circuit board in a way and things start to fragment quite a bit toward the end of the game but some of the buildings and stuff start to kind of disappear toward the end of the game so it does get pretty heavily dystopian toward the end but i do agree with you at the frontispiece of the game there's not really a lot of chaos going on The setting of this game takes place right as the chaos begins, because this is like that night something happens. Yeah. And she wakes up the next day, and that's when things have split and completely gone awry. It's not this world where something happened several years ago, and now you're dealing with the consequences. It's something that's like in the present. So that's just something to note about the game. Totally fair. So let's get into that gameplay. So this is a isometric action RPG. The layout of the game, and when I say layout, I just mean the field of view is very similar to Bastion. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it's in the same engine, but I'm going to assume that it is. Yeah. Again, I can't stress enough because they couldn't stress enough in this video I watched. They did not want to make Bastion again or Bastion Part 2. So (laughs) they just went with and all their games are in this vein as far as Mm -hmm. i know they don't make first person shooters they make isometric action games so this is just the way it's laid out so you play as red with the sword as we were talking about the transistor and the game is broken out into sections it's pretty linear You are moving from point A to point B. There's not that much exploration. There's some, but not too much. Mm -hmm. And the main crux of the game, I would say, is the battle system. The battles are not random. As far as I know, every battle is a battle. And I'm basing this on the fact that I read a guide that had a list of all the battles. So I'm fairly confident that they are set in stone, so to speak. Each battle is kind of like an arena. So... This is a weird type of strategy RPG. We played Vandal Hearts, we played Rhapsody Musical Venture, and our previous episode we just did was on Eternal Eyes, which are all strategy RPGs. And we've done Shining Force as well. So we have some experience with strategy RPGs. This one is this cool modern take on the strategy RPG where you're not on a grid, but you are in an arena that you can't leave until you defeat all your enemies. 
the whole hook is the kind of freezing time system, which is what inspired our question of the month. So you use your abilities, which are called functions, which you earn as you level up. And you can use these functions without freezing time, but you're just going to get barraged by the enemies. You really have to use this freezing time thing. And you have a kind of a status bar at the top that gets consumed when you either move or use your functions. So the strategy comes in positioning yourself before you freeze time, moving during freezing time and using your functions. And then you just kind of hit the R2 trigger and watch it all unfold and hope that you did well. Yeah. And and sometimes that can even include maybe putting an escape function at the end of it, as far as either running away from the last person you attack or you get an ability later where you can phase away. Right. Yeah. So that's the other kind of crux of the whole game really is the functions. It's kind of amazing this system that they made. And uh, it was noted again in this video that there are 3,000 combinations of functions because what they did was when you level up, you can choose these functions that are different types of attacks. But that's only the beginning of the system because each of the four face buttons is a main attack. So you can put your functions in those slots. But then each one of those has two like uh, secondary functions. So you can do all kinds of mixing and matching combinations. Then on top of that, I'll just throw in real quick and then we can kind of unpack this a little more. You have those passive slots. Yes. So it's kind of amazing in most RPGs or action games with skill trees, your primary functions are your primary functions, your secondaries are your secondaries, and your passives are your passives, and none between shall they mix. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. But in this game, every function you get can be used anywhere, and it's pretty amazing. I don't want to get too excited, but I think this is one (laughs) one of the things that really makes this game special is that they figured out a way to do this and have it mostly be interesting. Look, some combos are duds and they don't work that well, but that's part of the fun is experimenting with these things and trying different things. I'm pretty high on this system, Rich. What about you? Yeah, um, in contrast to what we played last month in Eternal Eyes, where we would get a magic ability and say, same as other ability, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this is completely different from that. And I think one thing that the developers do well is they lay out each ability. They lay out its equipped ability, its secondary ability, and its passive ability so that you can maneuver things around and decide what you like. And it's it's really neat. All the options that you have as far as structuring your attacks and structuring your defensive abilities in this game. And so I do like that a lot. Um, You were talking about the game earlier and how you have this field of play in this area that you are restricted to move through during combat. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a little bit of Parasite Eve. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the fact that it is that real-time action RPG, but I would say that this has a much, much more complex system. You know, I am very, very high on Parasite Eve. I love that game. It's one of my top games of all time. So it's going to be interesting to hear what my final thoughts are on this when we get there. Awesome. So I will just kind of throw in a couple other 
like tidbits about this system. When you level up, it usually puts you through a series of choices where you can choose the function. Some of these slots are locked in the beginning of the game. So for example, you can't just add secondary functions to everything right away. You have to earn those as you level up and choose them. Also, the overall number of functions you can use over those three categories has a total cap. So at times when you level up, you're going to want to add your, let's say, um, gross total of functions has a cap. So you want to add to that when you level up sometimes. The other system is called limiters. The developers said they wanted to make this kind of a customizable difficulty with a little more depth than, you know, easy, medium, hard. They want you to be able to play the game in a way that you can make it more difficult for yourself with some kind of reward for doing so. So limiters are things like enemies have extra shield, but you'll get extra EXP when you defeat them and stuff like that you can stack these up on top of each other to make the game really brutal i played around with the limiters a little bit but as you can probably imagine i'm not into making games harder on myself (laughs) so i did like that the option was there but i tended not to use them too much and it sounds like you're kind of with me there yeah, the limiters were an interesting system of risk versus reward, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you could go at a higher risk and make the game more difficult and be rewarded for doing that. And as far as gaining certain bonuses in the game, I don't know if there's different endings or anything like that due to limiters and didn't really look into it that much. But, you know, that's something that would be possibly pretty cool if they decided that they wanted to do that, you know, in a later game that they make. One of the other things that I thought was interesting about the functions that you were talking about were in terms of your health. You definitely had a health bar in this game, and when that would go all the way down, what would happen is it would activate your time, first of all, right? Mm -hmm. So it would stop time, and then you could set up your attack and make that attack. However, after that was over with, if you got hit again, you lost one of your functions, And I don't know if this was random or how they went about doing this as far as like what attack you were using the most. Is that what they were taking away or, you know, if there was just some order in that. But, you know, you could have up to three attacks and each time you quote unquote died uh, or your health ran out, you would lose a function until you were down to zero functions. And that's when you would ultimately have to start over at the last checkpoint. Yeah. So they said they would take away the strongest function and I'm not exactly how they sh- how they quantify that, maybe uh attack power, but that's Probably. that's what they noted. And also they implemented this system as a way to kind of force experimentation because they said I forget what the statistic was, but they said like 90% of people will tend to kind of settle into a comfort zone and just stick with a loadout for the whole game. So they they said this was a way to kind of nudge people into experimentation. If you're using one main attack and it's going to be something you kind of lean on because it's your strongest attack, when you end up getting KO'd, you don't get KO'd, you lose that function. It's like a the last stand in Call of Duty. You can still try to try to get out of the situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, I screwed myself over several times by not having 
a super strong secondary or third attack, you know, relying on that one heavy attack. And so, uh, yeah, I suffered a little bit through some parts of the game. Yeah, this makes the beginning of the game a little bit more challenging because you don't have as many functions to choose from. So in the battles themselves, the enemies were kind of designed to be sci-fi, but like smooth sci-fi. The art director, Gen Z, she didn't want it to be overcomplicated. So there's a purposeful simplicity to the enemy design. Also, the devs talked about with the time freezing system and all the functionality of the functions, let's say, they were able to make the enemies way more aggressive than you would normally see in a action RPG. That's one of the reasons I said, even though you can use your functions without freezing time, if you just run around and try and hack and slash, you're not going to have a good time. So, And that is because the enemies tend to be pretty aggressive. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you have a problem with killing dogs in games. I had no problem killing the dogs in these (laughs) games. Good Lord. They drove me nuts, man. Yeah, they were pretty rough. The other enemy that I really hated was the hare. I forget what the enemy was called, but it was like those predator looking dudes and they had these hair things that would come at you and they took away a ton of life. If they hit you, those are some of my (laughs) least favorites. I hated the healers too, which, but I thought was a, a neat concept. There were some enemies that either shielded other characters. So you had to take out the shield enemies first, or there were characters that healed. So if you say damage, one of the dogs, the dog would run over to the healing enemy and uh, heal up and come back at you. So there's a little bit of a a tactical element to the game. It wasn't just all hack and slash and freeze time. So that was kind of refreshing. Yeah. All right. So let's get into what you do when you're not in combat. So you have to traverse these environments and you have to find checkpoints to do your upgrade. There's no like pause menu where you can just change your slots and do your upgrades. So they have these like terminals where you have to Well, I actually should be careful when I say that because there's a different thing called the terminal that's for the story where it's almost like a newsstand where you can read news stories or participate in message boards, actually, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, And then there's something different called the checkpoint, which is where you would change around your functions and do your upgrades and stuff like that. So what did you think about that, that you can't just go into a pause menu and do your tweaking? Yeah, I didn't mind it so much. I thought there were plenty of them around. There are plenty of places to save your game and to make adjustments to your weapons. Sometimes I guess I was a little concerned when I would be down a weapon or down a function. We mentioned before that you could lose functions in battle, and if you would clear that battle, you would have to find another checkpoint in order to move some stuff around and maybe get a third function. Yeah. But also those, you've got me calling them terminals now, which, <laughs> uh, you know, these um, save points, if you would lose a function, you would have to actually find two new ones in order to get that function back. So you could re-retrieve that function at some point. But 
you know, I, I never found really an issue even with finding two more because they just seem so abundant. It's something that I really liked about the game and something that I think the developers did well with it. Yeah, I like that. And just so like in general, that the game is challenging, but not super difficult. I really like the balance in this game. And, and part of that is due to the customizable nature of the functions. Like you make the game work for you and the amount of access to these computers or whatever the hell they were called. Sorry, I can't remember <laughs> to get in and, and make these changes was just right, in my opinion. Yeah. And speaking of choices in the game, I did note that the game is mostly linear, but there are some diverging paths in the game. And Rich, you wanted to take note of some of those? Yeah, I always like games that give you options and that have diverging paths. But I felt like one of the faults of this game was you could take certain paths and not be able to go back. To where you were. And what I mean by that is you would come up on a screen where you would have two ways to go. And one way may be toward a save point, and the other way may be to progress to another screen where you might be fighting an enemy. And so if you went to that other screen, you might not be able to go back, especially with certain areas where I think there's one area where you have to like cross a canal or something like that. There definitely were spots where you couldn't go back. And so I felt like, oh my gosh, if I make the wrong choice, then I might miss out on upgrading one of my functions, you know? Yeah, I can see that. I don't think I found this to be a huge problem. So I'm glad you're bringing it up this way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know any other way to say it, except I didn't, I don't think I really ran into that. So that's very interesting. Yeah. And I, I don't know if there was some way that the game would like let you know, hey, you can't come back to this spot or you need to go into this portion of the game first. Like if it was a building or something, you would definitely want to go inside that small building because you know there would be something in there before going to maybe a path that looks like it's going off the screen. But I felt like I missed out on some of the game because of that. And uh, I was rather disappointed in that aspect. Fair enough. You just actually reminded me of something before we get out of the gameplay discussion is those little oasis areas that have the the little beach. Forgive me because these did have a name and I forget, but they had little <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, yeah. challenge rooms in them that mm -hmm. you could do. And I think one of the reasons we almost forgot about this is because I know neither one of us really did a lot of these, but they appear a few times throughout the game where you go into this room and it's like this beach and there's a tree and doors as you go up the tree and you can go into them and do challenge battles to gain extra upgrades or just extra EXP or whatever. Honestly, all you get is music. I don't remember getting anything like other than that. You get musical tracks for completing these levels oh, uh, okay. like access to them at any point that you want in the game. And I tried to do some research to see if there was any sort of benefit for finishing them all. And I could not find any information on that or where there was some sort of benefit in the game. And so I did probably about three of each of those challenges. And I was like, screw this, man, this is just like a time sink. And probably why I forgot to put it here on the outline is because it just seems so useless. 
I will say one thing I liked about this area, uh, the hounds that you mentioned before, one of your functions is that you have one of those. And when you go into these rooms, he's running around and uh, you can play with a beach ball with him and kind of knock it around and he'll chase after it. So I thought that was kind of (laughs) cute. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. Even though you and I didn't like it, I would say that's a kind of a cool way to kind of add content to a game if you're looking for a little bit of a challenge. Because these are like scenarios where it's like, you know, beat these certain enemies in a certain amount of time, beat it with only one function, beat it Mm -hmm. without using your time powers, like all these little challenge scenarios, which could be cool for somebody looking for a completionist run or a little bit more of a challenge or more content in the game. Yeah, I suppose so. To me, it felt like they were just trying to do something opposite of what they did in Bastion. Whereas in Bastion, that was a way to upgrade your weapons and upgrade your character by doing the challenges. And it was almost a necessity. In this game, it seemed to be more of an afterthought. Well, you can do it if you want to. You don't have to, but if you would like to do it, you can do it. And we'll give you this music track that you can listen to whenever you want. Hmm. So um, maybe that was the idea behind it. Maybe it was just we don't want to do a game like Bastion again. We want to do something different. So let's go this route instead and see how it works. You know? Totally. talk about the graphics and sound we'll start with graphics absolutely so this game has a very distinctive art style as i mentioned they wanted it to basically be the roaring 20s jazz age with a huge helping of cyberpunk and i want to say in my opinion they succeeded with coming up with something pretty unique i mean we've seen this like kind of fluorescent colored it's not truly cell shaded. I think Bastion was more of a traditional cartoon animation style. Bastion is in a fantasy world, so to use the word cell shaded, I think would apply more to Bastion, but not really. It's kind of uh-huh. uh, 
Yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> but in Transistor, it's more, how do I say? There's like solid colors. There's a lot of purples and greens and red, of course, accenting everything. I really like the art direction in this game. I like it way more than Bastion. I like fantasy and sci-fi, but I like sci-fi more than fantasy. So it stands to reason that I enjoyed the art direction of this game more than the previous one. So what about you? Yeah, I totally agree. I think that the graphics and art direction of this game are probably the game's strong point. Hmm. Reminded me a lot of Blade Runner as I was playing it, but I was afraid to say that out loud in front of Bill because he would probably <laughs> run through the store and buy the game. I was like, well, maybe he might want to hear a review of the game before deciding on making that purchase. But uh, yeah, a lot of bright colors too, like in uh, Fifth Element, you know? So, yeah, uh, yeah. Very cool sci-fi atmosphere, and I think Gen Z did an incredible job. So incredible that I put the name down on the uh, outline this time. So, yeah, very, very good work. Yeah, it's funny you mention Blade Runner because she actually said that she didn't want to give that impression. So you still picked up on that. So. <laughs> I did, absolutely. <laughs> so. It's hard not to, you know, with, with something like this futuristic sci-fi and uh, in a city setting, you know? Yeah, so uh, yeah. you're just always going to pick up on that with Blade Runner. She did note as well that there was a challenge with the level design that since you mentioned it's in a city that when you have an isometric view that any tall buildings are going to block the view. So mm -hmm. she had to be very creative with how the levels were laid out as far as giving an urban setting while still not obscuring everything with tall buildings. So that was a challenge that she noted. Yeah, good job with that. Yeah, definitely. And now we can get into the music, which, you know, Darren Korb is amazing. And, and the yeah. soundtrack of Bastion, I have it on my iPod. It's one of the better video game soundtracks of all time. As far as Transistor, honestly, I really like the music in here, too. I haven't listened to it outside of playing the game. You know, there's a musical theme to the game. Red is the singer who has lost her voice. Throughout a lot of the segments of the game, she will actually hum over the music, which I think is really beautiful. Rich, you had some pretty deep notes here on the music, so I, I want to kick it over to you because I feel like you have some pretty strong thoughts on it. You said you like Bastion's music, but I really dug the music in this game. It's like an electro jazz synth and sort of these electro like vocals by an artist named Ashley Lynn Barrett. The vocals only appear on a few songs, which is very interesting because, like you said, in this game, one of the main story plots is that the character Red has lost her voice and can no longer speak, but is able to somehow communicate with the sword. She can still hum, and I think one of the cool things about the game is there's actually a button you can push to use your transistor sword like a microphone you know, mm -hmm. use the hilt and sort of hum on it, which is really, really neat. I did want to note that an EQ filter was overlaid on the music during the pause and the turn events to give it sort of that dreamlike warping sound. Almost like when you put your hands over your ears and you kind of take them on and take them off, you know, how you have that muffled sound. Yes. And I thought that was really clever and really cool. I really liked that a lot. Yeah, definitely. 
this sounds just kind of empty, but I'm just saying like, I also really like the music in this game. And I think really the whole like art direction visually and sonically comes together so well in this game. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Darren Korb said specifically, like he wanted the music to sound as if it was stuff that red had written before she lost her voice and i uh, thought that okay. was very interesting so yeah he wanted it to have that in-world feeling and i think he was very successful at that the guy is amazingly talented yeah that's fantastic again one of the stronger points of the game in my opinion all right well we're actually coming up on the end of it man <laughs> i know it seemed quick yeah, so one of the things I I mean, and, and we can get into our final thoughts, and I want to talk a little bit about boss battles. Just one of the things about this game is that it's very short, and as far as yeah. other people's final thoughts, I don't have it in front of me, but I know Dougley007 was not super happy with how <laughs> short this game was because it retails for nineteen ninety nine, and uh, he he felt like he didn't get his money's worth. Now, I think that's a completely fair point. At least you didn't buy the limited run version like I did, buddy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Post-market limited run Oof. version. <laughs> yeah. So as for me, I played the game on PS4 and I had it in my download queue from PS Plus. So effectively, I paid nothing for this game. You know, for a game you can sit down and beat in about two or three settings, it's about five or six hours long. I understand that as a criticism, but... Mm-hmm. You know, some games are short. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. Um, but do you think if it would have lasted longer, it might have overworn its welcome? I definitely feel that. I way. agree. I agree. Because as you're going through these battles, I'm not going to say they get stale, but you can only do that so many times. And I think it's it, repetitive. Yeah, it was kind of kind of the right amount. Yeah, uh, but there are uh, a couple boss battles throughout the game, so I want to touch on those real quick. There are three major boss battles. One is with this other woman singer. And maybe, Rich, if you can help me refresh my memory, because I completed this game about two months ago. (laughs) Um, I remember there was that one. Then the second one was like this big monster thing that was pretty challenging. And then, of course, the final boss. So what what were your thoughts on these boss battles? (laughs) Well, the final boss battle really throws you for a loop dude but uh i really like the other two the lady you're talking about the other singer she was a member of the process and so you fight her and you kind of get this feeling like you're gonna fight all four members of the process you know this is gonna be one of these typical games where there's like four in a group or like eternal eyes was where you knew you were gonna fight all these other characters at some point but there's a twist in the game, and I'm not going to say what it is, but you know that really doesn't happen, which is fine. I, I like being surprised like that. But man, that final boss battle, uh, that was one of the worst final boss battles I've ever oh, really? had to go through in my life. Yeah, I, I thought it was horrible. It took me a few times to beat it. I thought it was just asinine and... Just no real strategy, I thought. And, you know, maybe I missed something in playing the game. But, you know, there's this final boss battle where you're fighting someone and they can also freeze time. And you're just at the discretion of, do you hit the time button first? 
And are you able to counterattack and able to stay away from this person long enough and escape so that you can attack again before they attack you? I thought it was bland. I, I thought it took away from the game and that graphically it's completely different. It gives the game an entirely different look. I believe, and I may be wrong about this, Sean, but it goes away from that isometric view into a flatter view, but it completely changes the makeup of the game, and I was not a fan of it. Sounds like you might have been. Wow. No, I wouldn't say like, oh, that was the best boss battle I ever went through. I thought it was interesting that they threw in Mm. a challenger who also had the time powers, but you know what? You're right. It comes down to run away far enough that he can't do that much damage to you and then try to get in to do your attack and rinse and repeat. So that is a fair criticism, but for me, it didn't leave as bad of a taste in my mouth as it did for you. So I'm sorry you had that. (laughs) that Yeah, it was a huge disappointment for me. And uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I know Doug beat the game too, but I'd like to hear his thoughts on it and how he felt about the end of the game as well, especially after complaining about the length of it. I don't know, man. That was a real drag for me. There's so much about this game that I love so much, but we've played games that have boss battles that are almost non-existent or are non-existent, and I could say that I prefer those to something like this, where they just completely change the entire makeup of the game. That's fair. I'm actually going to ask you to go into your final thoughts, because my cat just started wailing again. (laughs) Awesome, dude. (laughs) Well, oh, what to say about this game. I like this game. I think this game did a lot of things well. Graphically, I thought it was great. The music was great in this game. And, you know, I even love the story. I thought that the plot was very different than would be in a lot of other games. I mean, it is sort of that save the world plot. But the way things play out in the game are completely interesting. There's a twist Um, not only like three quarters through the game, but there's a twist even at the end of the game that I don't want to mention. I really liked how this game ended, Sean. And I think maybe you did too, only because I I know how you are when it comes to how you like your endings and possibly not tied up in a, you know, pretty little bow. But um, yeah, I thought there was so much cool stuff to do in this game. It does have a replayability, a games plus factor, but It's not a game that I would go back and play again, and it's not a game that I would want to get like completely maxed out in every category. I, you know, I finished with a few slots that I hadn't activated, and I'm wondering is it just not possible to activate all those slots in one go, or were there things that I missed? Like I mentioned before, I like the branching paths, but there were parts of the game where I didn't get to go to certain areas and I couldn't backtrack. And that was very frustrating for me. So, yeah, I mean, for two guys creating a studio, these guys started Supergiant Games in 2009. They actually lived together in an apartment and made Bastion and are still creating these really awesome indie titles. And I've heard that Hades has gotten really, really high marks. And I can't wait to play that. I actually have a copy. But, um recommending this i'm sort of lukewarm on doing that i think there's some people that might like it really like the atmosphere really like the story if you're really into that but all in all as far as the gameplay is concerned i felt like it was a lot of rinse and repeat a lot of repetitiveness and uh 
I think that's why they couldn't get good length out of the game because it would have just been really, really boring had it gone on any further. So, uh, yeah, man, I'm just kind of lukewarm on this game. I didn't love it as much as I thought I would, but still, at the same time, I'm really glad I played it. So I guess I would be uh, correct to assume that you didn't like this game as much as you like Bastion. I don't want to say that because I didn't finish Bastion. Oh, okay. Okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I didn't. I probably played about halfway through Bastion, and there were some things that were frustrating. Like I said, the challenges that you have to do in Bastion. I got really sick of that and tired of that. And like you, I really like this sci-fi world much better than I do the fantasy world. So aesthetically and musically, I you know I thought it was much more pleasing for me than uh, was Bastion. So I don't think I'm able to really compare the two, but from what I played, I like Transistor a little better. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, as for me, I'm kind of in the same boat as like, I like Transistor more than Bastion. I think in general, this is a really weird thing to say, but I think Bastion is probably a better game than Transistor, but I liked Transistor way more. Yeah. So my personal opinion is I would give Bastion like a six out of 10 and I would give transistor like an eight out of 10. And that's like mm-hmm. my subjective, a hundred percent opinion rating of these games where I can fully acknowledge that a Bastion is probably a better game. As far as transistor though goes, it's just because it checks a lot of boxes for me. Obviously, female protag, a redhead. <laughs> so, you know, as you know, my wife is a redhead, so I have a particular affinity for them. And this is kind of a funny point to bring up. But one of the things that I didn't like about Bastion was the voice narration seemed to be relentless and constant and kind of got annoying after a while. That's true. And I think they toned it down in Transistor, which was something I really appreciated. Yeah, so the whole plot point is that the Transistor talks to you, but it's not at a constant and relentless basis as I felt it was in Bastion. So that was another thing where I felt it was improved as far as my experience goes. I'm with you, like... 100% on board with the aesthetic, the art direction and music in this game. They knocked it out of the park what they were trying to accomplish with this. It's just eye candy and ear candy the whole way through. Now, as far as the battle system and the repetitive nature of the game, the length of the game, totally understand that. I really enjoyed my playthrough with this game, even as a person who chef's kiss for short games because i love not being bogged (laughs) down by a long game especially for a playthrough to do for the podcast i was like oh like after my first sitting with the game i'm like i'm more than halfway done with this game that's kind of weird you know what i mean yeah yeah so the criticism of it being a $20 game that you can beat in one sitting if you really wanted to. I totally get that. But that's the age old question of if you took a date to the movies, you would pay more than that and you would only be sitting there for two hours watching a movie. So that's for the player to decide if that value is worth it. For me, I would say it is, but that's having played it already. I like the game a lot and I would recommend it if you can get it maybe on sale if the $20 price tag is scaring you away for the length of the game totally understandable it goes on sale all the time in fact it was on sale on the switch 
during our playthrough. So just keep an eye on it. Try to get it for 10 bucks, five bucks on Steam, a dollar on Steam or whatever, because you know there's crazy sales on that <laughs> platform yep. all the time. And it's definitely worth your time for the experience. And like you, I'm more inclined to play Super Giants other games. Whereas just on Bastion, I probably would have never played Transistor if you didn't suggest it for this playthrough. So I got to throw that out there and say thanks because I may have never tried this game because of how I felt about Bastion. So I'm glad we played this and I will eventually play Pyre or Hades at some point because of that. Nice. Well, before we get into our upcoming games, I want to know how you felt about the ending of the game without giving too much away. Yeah, without giving too much away, uh, I was a fan. <laughs> I was a fan. Yeah, I thought you might be. I was. It was very interesting. I liked it. Yep, definitely. Good deal. So speaking of upcoming games, in May, you should already be playing Axiom Verge. Now, as I mentioned before, this is one of my favorite games that has come out in the last few years. So there's no way of spoiling my thoughts on this game. I love it. It's already on the table. It's a Metroidvania type game. And I think if you love Super Metroid or any of the Metroid series and you also love the Castlevania Symphony of the Night like games, you're going to really, really dig this game. It's got that sci-fi atmosphere that Sean and I love so much and uh, a really, really quirky story. So uh, if you haven't played this one, I definitely invite you to play it. I think I got my physical copy on the Switch for about $20. So, you know, not a bad price for a game and definitely has some length to it and is, um, in my opinion, well worth your time. And we'll see what Sean thinks next month. Awesome. And then in June, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to play Metal Gear Solid 2, which is available on all kinds of platforms, originally released on the PlayStation 2. I actually just played it on the original Xbox, and it has also been released on the more modern platforms as an HD remaster, which I might go poke around in here before we end up recording. But yeah, we did Metal Gear Solid all the way back in episode 18. So this is a long time coming for a follow-up. We're finally going to tackle Metal Gear Solid 2, and I'm so excited to get the input from you and from the community on this game because, like I said, it's having kind of a renaissance right now. So it's kind of cool. I'll just say that the original Metal Gear Solid is one of my favorite games of all time. I have very fond and loving memories of that game. I was not able to do the playthrough that month because I think I was on the more modern side. And so I didn't really get to give my thoughts on that game and I wasn't on that portion of the podcast. So I'm really excited to maybe talk a little bit about the first game and then um, talk about Metal Gear Solid 2. Have you ever played it before? MGS 2? No. No? Wow. Okay. Now I'm even more excited. As a fan of MGS1, playing Metal Gear Solid 2 for the first time in 2021. Rich, this is going to be awesome. Even more awesome than I thought. (laughs) All right. (laughs) 
going to do it for another episode thank you as always for listening and a special thanks to all our participants in may we're playing the retro throwback masterpiece axiom verge available on a number of platforms too numerous to list here get lost in this metroid style run and gun with us and our crew be sure to log on to the forums at arfgeneration.com to join this playthrough and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blame